More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. There's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Grace Dietzler. And I'm Joseph Valencia. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and link to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Becky Smoke, a master's student in the Marine Resource Management Program. Welcome to the show, Becky. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you uh, study, you're in the Marine Resource Management Program, so you study presumably the ocean. Yes. And you've kind of been interested in marine life uh, and kind of the diversity of it for a while, but it, there was one experience in particular that kind of got you set on this path. Yes. My very first opportunity to go out to sea, I kind of took it as a stepping stone for another career path, veterinary medicine. And when I went out there, I just completely fell in love with the marine world. I got to see dolphins and sunfish and sharks, and it just opened my eyes to an entire another world that I knew I had to be a part of. But you were first interested in veterinary science, you said? Yes. So w- w- what kind of uh, prompted the switch and why veterinary science in the first place? I grew up on a farm. Um, I come from a very rural background. My folks are very blue collar. And so veterinary medicine was kind of what everyone expected. It was a pretty high um, (laughs) career path, but I, once I went out to sea, I just realized that it wasn't for me. And there's a lot of other people that would be more passionate about the work they would be doing in vet med versus my heart lies with the ocean 100%. Yeah, so you kind of switched gears a little bit and then um, went to college at Washington State? Yes, yes. Um, I came to Washington State from Grays Harbor Community College, and I... Really, I still really love the school. Um, go Cougs. I, don't get me wrong. <laughs> love the beeves, but go Cougs. Um, and so once I was there, then I just kind of got lost in just trying to find my way to Oregon State. I had met my now current advisor when I went out to sea, and I 
just tried to make opportunities as much as I could to get back out on the water, to get back out to Newport, Oregon, to do marine resource research. Yeah, so you talked about the Marine Resource Management Program. Can you tell us a little bit about that here at Oregon State? The Marine Resource Management Program is one of the best programs, I'm sure, in the graduate school. <laughs> I am not the... Hot takes uh, here on the show tonight. Yeah, they say that I have every week. big opinions, <laughs> big opinions. But no, the whole MRM um, idea is that we're a family, we're working together, we have each other's backs, we all want to do the same thing and like study the ocean and, you know, really share the importances of everything that goes on while also providing a more management style approach and focusing on ecosystem-based management, like viewing the system as a whole versus single sector-based research. And um, my, she's now retired, the director of the program, Flax and Conway, reached out to my current advisor and um, basically pulled me from the other program I had applied <laughs> to and really advocated for me, found me funding, and it, without her, I wouldn't be in the MRM program, and I would have lost out on a total family opportunity to work with these people. So, so what's the day-to-day life like uh, in your program? What What is a typical day well, in the field or whatever it might be? Look like? it, it's very different for every student. We have students in geology like that work on dunes, whereas some students work on social science, like on NOAA ships with um, like sexual harassment type work. Mm -hmm. So it's really diverse and um, interdisciplinary program. But typically our days start off with goofing off in the office. Um, (laughs) Important part of any any day. Very important. But it's really nice because our office space is set up as two sides. You have the first year side versus the second year side. And the first year side is a lot more open and um, set up for like communicating between like your colleagues and working together in classes and really um, getting to know one another and fostering a very like, yeah, family type environment. Whereas the second year side is cubicles (laughs) for, you know, getting the writing for your thesis done. Yeah, we need (laughs) to focus. So um And then we also have a really, really awesome lounge donated from a past MRM student who passed away in a scuba diving accident. But the lounge is really awesome. And we will actually like go in and talk about our projects and what's really bothering us and work together to find solutions on just research because research is hard and it's really nice to have a community so you don't feel so isolated. And that's what MRM brings to COs, just a total community environment. And often graduate school can feel so competitive. And so it must be really nice to have that kind of, yeah, that collaborative and community-centered environment. The approach is definitely something, it's basically your success doesn't take away from my success. Mm -hmm. And so there's no cutthroat tendencies in it at all. We are really trying to work together to create better policy, to create, you know, better management for, like, ecosystems, um, it does not science tends to get this like reputation for being cutthroat and Mm -hmm. competitive but we're all working on really important projects and it's all really important like work that's happening so we i think understand that we're not competing with each other we're trying to boost each other up and really you know create a inclusive environment yeah so collaboration especially when you're tackling these 
problems that really affect the whole world. I mean, the ocean is yeah. the, I mean, the, the giver of life basically <laughs> for the, for the rest of the planet. So it makes sense that you would all want to work together. You all have a common goal. Yeah. And nothing in, if anyone knows anything about ecology, nothing's simple, nothing's mm, linear. Yeah. <laughs> and there's so many connections. So having the type of interdisciplinary science we have in this program, it really makes sense for what we're actually dealing with in our ecosystems. Nothing is isolated. It's all connected and all working together. Very cool. So I think you had, you had mentioned to us that you did an RU at Oregon State before before joining, right? Is, is that something that you've followed along a train of research since then or um, you know how is how have what you've been interested in evolved yeah so the very first time I went out to see that what mm -hmm. I talked about um, one of my chief scientists actually encouraged me to look into a research experience for undergrads um, internship REU it's a national science funded program that gets undergraduate students involved in research that they may not have otherwise had an opportunity to get involved with and so I applied to a lab um, down at Hatfield, the Hatfield Marine Science Center in Newport, Oregon. And I actually got declined. And it was traumatizing, but it was actually the best thing that could have ever happened to me because then um, my now current advisor, I could, I could hear some whispering going on in the boat and I was already pretty sad. So I was like, I'm just gonna go off in my little corner. Um, and she came after me later that night and was like, hey, I honestly, I have a spot for you. You should just be my REU student. Wow. And that opportunity opened every single door I've had since. Wow. And um, once I finished my REU, I actually had to leave early because Washington State University, I was attending my senior year that time. Um, it was on a semester system. So I left the REU early because um, Oregon State's mm -hmm. on a quarter, quarter system systems. and yeah. starts a month later. <laughs> and I didn't finish my project. And so I had to come down that winter and I worked on my data analysis in December once the term wrapped up for everyone with my advisor and we just started brainstorming opportunities. Um, she tried to tell me to like look at other schools, but I already knew I wanted <laughs> to go tell. work with her. Yeah. I knew the kind of like um, work she was doing was really important for the you know, coastal environment and everything so I was pretty gung-ho and I was like yeah yeah I'm, I'm looking at other programs <laughs> but really I was dead set on working with her. So you ended up um, picking OSU for your master's and you're in um, who, who's your advisor by the way? Dr. Maria Cavanaugh. Um, we're in the Seascape Ecology Lab and so I was her third graduate student. Oh wow. She's a relatively new um, professor here and um so there was some growing pains there being in a small lab, but her, as an advisor, she's really wonderful and I have nothing but kind things to say. And she really did, you know, take me under her wing and give me an opportunity to make something better for myself because I didn't really have a direction I was going and um, really just gave me so much more than I could have ever asked for. Wow. That, that's really amazing. The, the power of a good advisor and a good mentor can really change the world. <laughs> it can really change the world. Yeah, I've watched a lot of peers go through some pretty bad struggles and grad school is really, um, it's hard. It can be really mentally challenging. And if you don't have that kind of support, then it it's just not 
it's not ideal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I got lucky um, and everyone in my lab got lucky. <laughs> That's great. So tell us about um, what your lab studies and maybe your specific role or your slice of it. Yeah, so the Seascape Ecology Lab is also a pretty interdisciplinary science group. Um, whereas I started my REU doing a project with Maria, um, looking at phytoplankton um, growing rates and microzooplankton grazing rates of pond nose phytoplankton, which is a really, <laughs> I can break that down a little bit, yes. but essentially, um, we were working on this project that is more ecology based and more focused on like what's happening in the relationships between these like organisms in the water. And then, um, but there's also work done via satellite imagery. And so we can look at like phytoplankton and their blooms and chlorophyll from space. And so there's wow. a lot of that work going on. What do those on look too. like from space? It looks like very beautiful green swirlies. Wow. <laughs> um, and this you is can, like videos that you can see. In it's you can see it on like Noah's website if you type in like phytoplankton blooms um, from space. You can see like images and everything. It's really beautiful. I highly suggest it. So, so for a quick definition, can you tell us what a phytoplankton is? Yes, a phytoplankton is a eukaryotic protist. It is a single-celled mm -hmm. organism in the marine environment. Essentially, I would. I would like to call it maybe like the grass of the ocean. Um, it's <laughs> algae and it is the base of the food web. Everything relies on phytoplankton for nutrition. And so what are you studying then in phytoplankton? I guess, what were you studying and what are you studying now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there is a project that I'm working on with my lab group and my advisor um, and we're continuing to do these things called dilution experiments. Hmm. And a dilution experiment is essentially exactly what it sounds. You dilute water. <laughs> and through the process of doing this, you can actually get different um, landscapes, essentially, in these communities. So one dilution will have, like, 50% um, phytoplankton, and the other one will be, like, 100%. And we determine this through filtering and everything. And there's a lot of... Um, science that goes into it but essentially the whole point of it is to understand um, the predation rates upon phytoplankton and what's eating them to determine how fast they're growing versus not fast and it has um, some major implications on the carbon cycle mm. and can either increase the amount of carbon you have in the environment versus decrease and so that project um, then and kind of made me really interested in the nutritional aspect of phytoplankton. And so currently I am interested in determining um, the effects of changing ocean conditions on phytoplankton communities and basically the makeup of like what species are in that community and what effect that has on the fatty acids <laughs> of phytoplankton. If you are just now tuning in, you're listening to KBVR 88.7 FM Corvallis, and this is Inspiration Dissemination, and we're talking with Becky Smoke about uh, fatty acids in phytoplankton. So, so tell us about that. Okay. So to get everyone kind of orientated, um, everyone knows if you go to the supermarket, you can probably find an omega-3 fatty acid like supplement. Like a cod liver oil yeah. or something. Yeah, the yeah. little golden pills, as I would like to call it. <laughs> and so you, there's a lot of, um, <laughs> it's kind of nuanced in the sense that like some people are less so 
like, oh, I don't need that supplement versus they want it. And so, but it still has a really high demand and um, for humans. But essentially, an essential fatty acid is a biomolecule, fatty acid, that we are unable to synthesize ourselves. And when I say we, I mean vertebrates. Mm. So, oh, wow. across yeah, the board. across the board. And we have a, the ability to kind of, um, if we consume, a, a, call them precursor molecules, and basically it's like a smaller version of an essential fatty acid, just a fatty acids. And we're able to do through some like, you know, internal processes, synthesize it to be elongated for an essential fatty acid. However, it's pretty really low conversion rates. So essentially humans and other vertebrates really need to acquire these molecules via diet, which can be tricky. But if you're like me and love salmon and anchovies, it's no problem. <laughs> and so you said earlier that that phytoplankton are kind of like the start, like the grass of the ocean, the start yeah. of the food chain. So I'm assuming they have these fatty acids yes so fatty the phytoplankton are the sole providers of essential fatty acids wow. in the marine environment the sole providers the wow. sole providers it starts with them and so through it's a process called bioaccumulation other organisms will consume these phytoplankton and they will take these molecules and kind of they can either modify themselves as a consumer um, and create the fat the acids that they need for their diet or um, other opportunities like just consuming fish, essentially. So yeah, phytoplankton, when I say they're the base of the food web, they're really the base of the food web. <laughs> they are awesome. And it's something that people don't really know. Everyone, well, not everyone, but um, phytoplankton are also responsible for a large percentage of the oxygen in our atmosphere. So oh, wow. we think about trees as being the providers of oxygen, but really it's our friends, the algae in the ocean that's doing a lot of the work. So these phytoplankton are really kind of the heavy lifters of, of the food they web really, and the, the atmosphere. And yeah, they are in, they're super involved. Like I said, mm -hmm. the project with um, the dilution experiments, um, mm -hmm. that also has um, implications on the carbon cycle. So you can look at like what's being drawn into because... They take in carbon dioxide and they release oxygen as um, mm. it's almost like their discard. If you some of the classes, um, specifically one class I'm thinking of in particular, they <laughs> he will literally call phytoplankton like poo and pee because <laughs> it's their oxygen, it's their discard, it's their waste. So, um, yeah, they're super important. They play a role in almost everything. And so my interest is looking at their role in the nutritional aspects of the marine environment and like what nutritional components they can provide. So how essential are we talking for the, for these fatty acids? What are the effects on some, whether it's you know, any, any of these vertebrates that don't get access to these? Yeah. So there's fatty acids and then there's essential fatty acids. And I kind of use the terms loosely, but really um, we, there's fatty acids, but the ones that are essential, we call them long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, which is um, a long-winded word for really um, nutritionally charged molecules. They're the best, that's the goal. So it's the story is back in 1930, um, a husband and wife, Burr and Burr, they coined the term essential fatty acid based on a study they did with feeding rats and the rats that did not have any fat 
in their diet. Um, they ended up having like inflammation, their um, hair fell out, they got scaly skin, mm -hmm. and they eventually died. And so that was where fatty acids got their start. And there's been a lot of research done since then, but the field is relatively new and we're still learning a lot about it. But so yeah, they're pretty essential for all normal life. I feel like you hear a lot about taking uh, omega-3 fatty acid supplements for like cognitive and brain health. Yeah. So I guess our brains are mostly made of fat. Mm -hmm. Yes, actually, when you're born, 90% um, of your brain fat comes from the ocean in the form of wow. a, one of those essential fatty acids, DHA. And wow. so it's really common to see a lot of prenatal vitamins. They have like DHA and EPA because that is where our brains are literally getting the power they need to be what they are. That's amazing. So our brains are the direct result of phytoplankton we in the ocean. the ocean. Yes. In multiple ways. Amazing. Yes. Um, there's even debate among whether we became um, agriculture like 10,000 years ago, whether we had the brain capacity to start doing, you know, cultured crops with whether or not it came from the ocean and this mm. like a sense that we were um, correlated with we started living by the ocean, we started eating more fish, and then we were able to develop bigger brains, essentially, wow. to start doing like agriculture and like, yeah, farming crops. Big brain time. Big so brain time. <laughs> what happens to people who don't eat a lot of fish then, or maybe any fish? There is still a lot of debate in the scientific community. Um, you'll hear a lot of like charge statements like uh, omega-3 supplements can cure depression. They, they actually don't. There's no such thing as a curative supplement. Um, but they can, you know, in fish especially, they are super, um, they help with fecundity. So like mm. the reproduction and everything, they are really vital molecules for a lot of biological processes. If you were to completely stop eating the essential fatty acids, I I don't know if they've ever done that experiment with humans, but I think it would not be good. <laughs> and no one, I don't no one think would sign up for that trial. No one would sign up for that trial, no. But yeah, the entire marine environment like relies on these molecules for just normal like organismal function, essentially. But so one of the things that you're interested in in your research is these unsung heroes of the ocean that are so important for our nutrition and the nutrition of so many other organisms are under threat um, due to things like climate change. Yes, climate change is <laughs> putting everything under threat. Mm. It's very concerning. Um, but so in recent years, there's been a lot of um, the sea surface temperature has increased and through different um, systems, like you, someone may have heard of like the El Nino and just in 2014 through 2016, the um, Pacific Ocean had a the North Pacific marine heat wave. Mm. And during that time, that totally changed the dynamic of the food web. Everything got out of balance. In the off the Oregon coast, we typically think about the copepods, for example. They are a primary consumer, so they're consuming phytoplankton directly. And so this is where my research gets tricky because I can't say too much because it's still to be determined. Stay tuned for my thesis. <laughs> but um, we've seen changes in the abundance and the composition mm -hmm. of fatty acids and organisms in recent years due to things like warming ocean temperatures and um, other processes like maybe nutrient availability and everything. So 
the common thing you may hear um, is that there's two different types of copepod communities in the um, Oregon coast. You have the northern copepod communities and you have the southern copepod communities. Now, we will refer to the northern copepod communities as cheeseburgers because they are loaded with these things called polyunsaturated fatty acids. <laughs> and the southern copepod communities um, are depleted of these major biomolecules, and they do not have as much. And we'll refer to them as celery or rice cakes. <laughs> <laughs> and so during the 2014-2016 North Marine Pacific heat wave, um, there were no northern copepods showed up. They were completely gone from that, the wow. ecosystem. They that never came. One. So it was only the southern copepod communities that were fueling um, like things like forage fishes, like sardines and anchovies. And it had huge implications on things like the salmon runs. Mm. Um, 2017 had a decrease in salmon returns. Wow. And Directly as a result of this... Directly, indirectly, and that's part of mm -hmm. where my research comes in is trying to understand like what's happening and how are these molecules and how are the phytoplankton communities responding to the changing ocean conditions. It's a really everything. complex relationship. Super complex, and it's hard to determine anything exactly because ecology is really messy and intertwined, and again, correlation is not <laughs> causation. Mm -hmm. So oh, yeah. we can make strong correlations between um, certain phytoplankton species and fatty acid molecules. But again, there's so many factors, it's hard to just nail one down as a reason. So do we know anything about what, how the levels of fatty acids um, influence just not, not even anything more than the number of, of these copepods or whatever it may be? Um, does it, I, I know you, you shared the story about the northern copepods and, and the, um, the heat wave, but yeah, just watching the variation between these levels is—is is there a direct effect on the population size? Um, it could be population size, but really, what we're kind of like my research is investigating is the um, how changing ocean conditions will affect phytoplankton community composition, mm. and so. By looking at the community composition of phytoplankton, we're looking at the individual species that make up that community. And these different species have different fatty acids. Each organism's different and brings something different to the table. And so it's not whether or not we're seeing decreases in all of the fatty acids. It's just more so we're seeing decreases in the abundances and the types. So, i.e., you end up with less nutritious uh, molecules like the southern copepod communities they still have fatty acids of course but they're less nutritionally um, charged essentially they're not as good which is a good is a bad <laughs> phrase to put on a science like but essentially yeah so and these amounts of fatty acids do they have to do with the water temperature or is there some kind of association there is so the we can't say definitively of course. still under review <laughs> um, but we are interested in seeing if um, increasing sea surface temperatures decrease, decreases the relative abundances and composition of fatty acids so just mm. maybe less so less long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids and you end up with more saturated fatty acids um, it has a lot of like different implications associated with it. 
because the, the warmer weather or warmer waters versus colder waters, you might need more fatty acid to survive in colder waters. Yeah. So the difference between these, when I say these saturated, um, think about butter at room temperature. It's mm. pretty solid. And then you end up with um, these polyunsaturated fatty acids, which is liquid at room temperature. Mm. And so when you're a northern copepod community coming down from the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, you're going to really want to have more um, liquid fats Mm. in a colder environment than the other way around. So we typically like to put the good and bad on the copepod communities, but really we're interested in determining is it the phytoplankton communities that are driving these changes or is it the actual ocean conditions driving these changes? Gotcha. And so you use some pretty interesting methods to actually assess this. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Lucy. (laughs) (laughs) Lucy, Lucy, Lucy. Um, (laughs) So I have the privilege to work with this incredible incredible machine. It's called an imaging flow cytobot, IFCB for short. And um, these things were originally created in a cytometer in hospitals to count like blood cells. And some scientists came along and converted it into a way to count particles in the water. So essentially through laser technology and a bunch of complicated mechanisms, you can take a set sample, for example, five milliliters of water, and you can um, intake that into the machine, and the machine will actually take images of all of these particles and get view, like, the total area and all these dimensions, length, width, um, and everything, so you can properly identify and determine the biomass, biovolume in the sample. And this machine is nicknamed... Lucy, because um, she has broken a lot in most of my (laughs) master's career. She's been offline. (laughs) So her real name is Lucifer, but it's (laughs) it's Lucy for sure. Yeah, she, but really um, it was a whole lab. It made our lab stronger. We all spent a lot of time (laughs) troubleshooting and working on it together. Um, And we all know a lot more about the machine as well. So ultimately it was a really good thing that happened and I don't, have any problems with Lucy. I don't want to slander her. <laughs> she might break again. Best she lab mate. Best lab I, mate. I, all my data's ran. She can break. <laughs> no, just kidding. My lab mates would be severely depressed if that happened. Like those are those like skills you learn in grad school that they don't tell you you're going to learn. You're like, oh, now I can fix this, you know, very specific You'll actually spend a lot of, of your time troubleshooting things. <laughs> yeah, so many. I mean, my advisor spent the most time on it, of course, but, and I watched, there were some pretty interesting times at sea together when Lucy was breaking and the boat was rocking and just really fine instrument with tiny, tiny screws oh. and just, just chaos all around. But Ultimately, Lucy will end up capturing these what we call mosaics, and you can see all of the different particles, aka phytoplankton, mm-hmm. in a water sample, and that can tell you a lot about the type of fatty acids. So a big part of my research is taking these um, images, classifying them into actual, like, what they are, whether or not it's this species versus this species, and then you can also get biovolume out of it, which is a huge um, tool for determining the amount of phytoplankton in the environment. Biovolume is the collective volume or of a specific? So the imaging flow cytobot will, okay, backing up. 
before we had access to this kind of technology, um, traditional ways of determining phytoplankton were through microscopy. Hmm. And it involved a lot of time and an expert eye to do the taxonomy and kind of um, decipher between what was what. And everyone assumed a fixed like rate for the biovolume, aka I say biovolume because we're working with water. So otherwise I would say biomass. But essentially you would say this phytoplankton, we're going to multiply it by this to determine the biomass of that sample. And they assumed a constant size for every single phytoplankton. Mm. But we know that's wrong because, um, well, that's ecology, again, is way <laughs> more complicated than assuming a constant size for everything. And you can have large plankton with more biovolume and you can have smaller plankton with less. And that has direct implications on fatty acids because then you get into like the relative abundances. Mm. And so maybe like a big fat juicy diatom will have more fatty acids than, say, um, a lesser fat phytoplankton. Cheeseburgers come in all shapes and sizes. Cheeseburgers come in all <laughs> shapes and sizes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you're actually using um, some computer science in your work, too, right? Yeah. So uh, my lab group and I, we trained a classifier. It's called a random forest algorithm and essentially our um, description and our correct identification of these images will get put into this algorithm and it'll it's like rank based and it's kind of, it goes based on voting so if it has this many votes for yes it means it's this species and if it has this many and it's not that species and it goes through this ranking system it's extremely complicated i'm not even very good at explaining it <laughs> but we get out this data output that has the um, counts for like each phytoplankton that we think is in that sample. And then you also get the biovolume output from it. And the inputs to the random forest are like the little boxes around the, the cells in your image or something like that? Or? Yeah. Um, the random forest works completely on, it's like all done in MATLAB. It's really um complicated like I said and it basically votes and the vote that wins will get classified into that category mm -hmm. and so I have like we call them classes we have 39 different classes of phytoplankton and the random forest will determine if an image belongs to this class or this class based on the amount of votes it has for the correct identification cool and you mentioned maybe babysitting Lucy on some of those those boat trips. But tell me more in general about what it's, what it's just like to be out on the ocean. So going out to sea is probably the most amazing thing in the whole world, um, unless you get seasick. But if you do, it's do not be afraid. Um, you can still go out to sea and be a scientist. <laughs> you just work with your lab group and you take a lot of drugs. <laughs> the, you know, kind over the counter, the legal kind, of course. That's yes, what I mean. Yes. yes, of course. Um, so, yeah, I go out on a NOAA ship and the NOAA ship is pretty phenomenal. We have snacks, ice cream, movies, um, a lounge. <laughs> we have beanbag chairs we lounge in and... Um, Really, the atmosphere on the ship is just really awesome, and it depends a lot on the chief scientist, but luckily we have a really wonderful chief scientist, and um, they're able to foster the environment that they would like. So it's a really inclusive environment, and um, 
pretty fun. Science is pretty fun. You work really hard and it's really exhausting and you end up like having, we call it um, ship brain. <laughs> and you're just kind of like loopy for a few days. But yeah, it it's pretty awesome. I have no complaints. And when you're on the boats, uh, the research vessels, I guess, doing this yes. uh, research, where are you actually going? So um, our... the research I do is with a lab group down in Newport, um, the Bill Peterson lab group, and they have been doing um, work on what we call a Newport hydrographic. Mm. It's essentially a line that starts um, one nautical mile off the coast, and it extends straight out west into the ocean, 200 miles towards Japan. <laughs> um and so that's what we call our Newport hydrographic, and we sample that bi-monthly. However, we go out three times a year for these, they're called Northern California Current Ecosystem Surveys. And really, we're just trying to get an idea of what's going on. We have different lab groups. We have um, lab groups that study foraminifera, a different type of plankton in the environment, and lab groups that study krill, and um, we even have some marine mammal um, observers and researchers go on a vessel too. So it's a really collaborative environment and there's a lot of different science happening and it's very, very fun and informative. Yeah. Something that strikes me is like, it really is so interdisciplinary. You have to be thinking about the biochemistry, maybe for yourself, you have to think about the, the geochemical flows, yeah. uh, the climate change issues. So how do you, how do you feel like you, you learn and put together all those pieces for your, for your stuff? The classes are designed in COs to be interdisciplinary. It, it really is. COs is taking a new approach on how we study the marine environment, and we are tackling it from an interdisciplinary view versus single sector. And so there's a lot of different personalities. you got the physical oceanographers, the biological oceanographers like myself, and um, – Honestly, we teach each other. There's a lot of conversation. There's a lot of communication between the researchers, a lot of collaboration and discussing projects and how we can all work together. Because, yeah, while one component that I study is the nutritional aspect of phytoplankton, they provide a like, multitude of other fundamental processes that are being researched. And so it's all connected. It's really <laughs> complicated. <laughs> yeah, everything's related. Yeah, everything's really related. The environment in the ocean is not its not a one-man process. It's everything happening all at the same time. And trying to decipher those processes and get like figure out what's actually happening is, can be pretty challenging. And I feel like it's those really collaborative environments where you're all studying something a little different and all learning from each other where you can really um, come up with some amazing ideas. Yeah, the... I mean, I have just even TAing with, um, a, she's more so, I guess, physical oceanography, but even talking to her, I've come up with like three different research projects <laughs> to study in the future. Um, Cause you just kind of chat, you talk about your research and we all are so interested in it and you can come up with some really cool projects and um, definitely fosters an environment for creative learning, mm. very much so. So you mentioned the future. So, so what do you think your future holds for you? You're getting ready to graduate. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, I'm about a month away from defending my master's. 
The future is scary and <laughs> full of the unknowns. But yeah, I'm in the middle of um, applying for jobs. Um, I think I'm probably going to head back to Washington because there's a ton of jobs up there with Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. And uh, the door is still open for me to come back for a PhD if I want. I, I really love studying under my advisor and I love the work she does and the work our lab does. And so I don't know. I hope to maybe go get a few years of real life experience and then come back and see where I'm at. But you know, they always say, even if you hate your life in the very last month of your thesis, if you loved the work you did a year ago, like you're going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> you just, everyone feels the same way at the very bitter end. It's just, just great advice. So stressful. <laughs> so I think we're getting to the end of our show here. Um, and on inspiration dissemination, we have a couple traditions. Um, so what is the, what is your favorite Thing about what you study oof I kind of okay yeah it's the different pictures of phytoplankton oh, yeah. it's the different species yeah so phytoplankton are made out of um well there's two different groups one's made out of silica which we know as opal silicate so if you're wearing an opal earring um the same yeah, the same uh, material composition yeah. is the same as um, wow. a diatom. Wow. And yeah, and they're beautiful. And then there's the dinoflagellates, and they're made out of a cellulose um, encasing, and it's made in these like plates. It's very interesting. But they do some wild stuff. There's one plankton in particular that I really enjoy that will open its entire stomach vacuole and consume something. So imagining cutting wow. yourself in half and like a clam, shutting it and eating it. That's a disturbing visual. It's very disturbing. They're pretty wild. They're predators and you would not think yeah, about geez. this, but what's happening in like a drop of water is a bunch of like predation and it's, it's terrifying. They, I feel like someone needs to make a horror movie about that. They really could. It's yeah. But the pictures of the phytoplankton and different species, they're um they're so biodiverse and so beautiful. I just really like getting to see what's happening. It's like a kind of like a club. I'm in the water club, you know? Like I know what's happening in that water droplet. All the yeah. drama. <laughs> yeah, there's the drama. drama. <laughs> Lower trophic levels are intense. Yeah. <laughs> And then uh, one of our next traditions is a piece of advice for, um, it could be for anybody um, at any stage of life. I came from um, a background that wasn't advocating for me to go to college. It wasn't a supportive environment that wanted me to go and do these big things because it was kind of, they, they were scared. They were scared of the opinions and the power I would have if I created an independent mindset. But I kind of think my main piece of advice is that you you can do it and you should do it. And even if it's oceanography and it sounds scary and it sounds like super smart, but it's you really get lost in the passion and you can make up for a lot based on passion. And so and if you get seasick, so do I. Everyone does. Big, <laughs> big misnomer in the marine science field is that you ha can't get seasick and you most certainly can and you most certainly can do research There's a discipline for everyone and there's a place for everyone and we need more researchers you know it's things are happening there's with climate change yeah there's a lot to learn you know and we're just now kind of broaching the surface of these big picture issues is that an ocean pun <laughs> <laughs> 
poet and I didn't know it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So thank you so much for coming on the show, Becky. This has been really informative and uh, really fun. Um, And so our last tradition is to have you pick your outro song. So go ahead and tell us the song and uh, why you picked it. Um, I chose a sea shanty because it is good study music and it's very upbeat and fun. And I just thought it would be a nice. Do you listen to sea shanties when you're on the research boats? I I don't because I think all the other scientists would kick me off. (laughs) I would definitely get muted, (laughs) but maybe I will start that tradition. I probably should. Yeah. Well, here we go. This is Botany Bay by the Blaggards. Sing along if you know it. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Farewell to your bricks and mortar. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends.